Welcome to a podcast of Wyoming Chronicle, where we tell the stories of Wyoming in a weekly program of interviews with newsmakers, artists, innovative thinkers, and unique Wyoming personalities. To learn more, visit us at wyomingpbs.org. Senator Mike Enzi's political career spans decades, and it all began when Senator Al Simpson, while encouraging him to run for office, told the then 30-year-old Enzi to put his money where his mouth is. And that is just what Enzi did, first serving as Gillette's mayor, then in the Wyoming legislature, and finally as a four-term United States senator, where he passed over 100 bills. Senator Mike Enzi, at home in Gillette, next on Wyoming Chronicle. This program was funded in part by a grant from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food and beverage products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Funding for this program is made possible in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council, helping Wyoming take a closer look at life through the humanities, thinkwhy.org, and by the members of the Wyoming PBS Foundation. Thank you for your support. And as we begin this special Wyoming Chronicle, it's my honor to be joined by Senator Mike Enzi. Senator, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. Well, I'm looking forward to the interview. So, so are we, and, and um, we're in your office here in Gillette. I think the most appropriate question to begin with is how's retirement? Uh, it's absolutely delightful. Um, I didn't realize the amount of strain that a person's under when they're serving. Uh, you know, just the trip back and forth from Washington to Wyoming, plus the 500 miles a weekend around Wyoming, um, is more of a strain than I realized. It's uh, very nice to have the extra time and not have to travel and to be around Wyoming people all the time. Well, we're certainly glad that, that you're here too and congratulations on such a wonderful life of service, almost 50 years, Senator. <laughs> it seems like a long time. Yeah, I always think of it in segments rather than as a, as a whole. It's much easier that way. It's been a delightful adventure. Uh, I've gotten to meet so many tremendous people. I've gotten a, a fantastic education. Everything that I've ever worked on has been an education for me because I really didn't know as much as I should have to be able to handle the situation. But I've also been lucky in that I've had some good people to work with I've never had anybody work for me. I've only had them work with me, and I was able to find tremendous groups of people to help me out through all of the different uh, things that I've done, whether it was being mayor, being in the legislature, or now in the United States Senate. But of course, the biggest help that I had was having somebody say yes to my request to marry. <laughs> and she has been with me now for over 51 years almost 52 years and just been a tremendous helpmate and actually does the bulk of the work and I get the bulk of the credit. And you're talking of course about your wife Diana. Yes, Diana. Innovative in her own right and done a number of spectacular things, um, helping out in other countries to remove landmines and uh, uh, showing people how um, homeless shelters can work better 
and just a whole variety of things that she's worked with as she's even adopted another community in D.C. that have nothing to do with Congress that she's been helping out with and getting to know and learning from. I want to start by visiting about what Senator McConnell said about you um, as he was saying goodbye in the Senate. He said this. He said, the senior senator from Wyoming has accomplished enough in one career to fill two. He has seemingly glided from business success to military service to local government to state politics to the United States Senate, where he has built a remarkable, productive legislative record. Senator, you passed over 100 bills. That, in, in today's world, that seems almost incomprehensible. <laughs> it really does. Well, it, it is because things have changed so much. We used to be able to work across the aisle a lot more, and we did bills a step at a time. Now everything has to be comprehensive. If you, if you tackle a problem, you've got to cover the, the whole thing. And so it's like 3,000 pages in a bill. Who can read 3,000 pages comfortably? And if you do find some things, and you always find some things you'd like to correct, you can't correct them because the process is so um, cumbersome on doing it on the floor that it can't be done. So you either have to accept it or not. And most of the things don't, don't get accepted. But if you bite it off a, a step at a time, you can actually scrutinize it. You can draw in other people and get ideas. You can grow those ideas so that they will work and uh, you can eliminate some things that are going to cause a problem. That's my 80% rule or 80% tool. And I want to talk about that because you talk yeah. about that in the context of it's not really compromise, it's common ground as I understand it. Absolutely. Yeah, compromise is where you give up half of what you believe in and I give up half of what I believe in and we wind up with something that nobody believes in. But there's... If, as you're going through issues, you'll find that you can agree with 80% of the issues with the other person. And if you pick out any one of those issues, you'll be able to agree on 80% of that issue. Not the whole thing, because there's 10% on both sides that have been colliding for years. I got to work particularly with Senator Kennedy on a lot of those issues that had been butting heads for years. And what we did was figure out that you can take that piece out it doesn't destroy the bill. It just doesn't do as much as what people might like to do in that one step. But it gets the rest of it done. Um, we'd worked on mental health parity. He had worked on mental health parity with Senator Domenici for 14 years and hadn't been able to get it through. And because of some other successes that I'd had with him, he came to me and said, would you take a look at this bill and see if there's something we can do to it? And I showed him the parts that were killing it each time. Now, the interesting thing is those parts that were killing it were considered by the mental health community to be the most important pieces of the bill. So we got the whole mental health community together, and I said, so how long have you been working on this? They said, well, 14 years. I said, how much have you gotten done? I said, well, none of it. So Senator Kennedy and I explained the different parts that we were going to be getting done and the piece we were going to be leaving out. We said, wouldn't you like to get all of this done and just leave this out? And the light bulb came on. And instead of pushing against it on the floor, they started helping us. And it went over the cliff and we got mental health parity. Senator, and, some people yeah. today would look at what you've just talked about with working with Senator Kennedy, a Democrat. <laughs> 
And how could you ever do that from conservative Wyoming? Yet you have a spirit of bipartisan um, um, support in your career that is almost unmatched. What would you say to those folks? Well, what you try to do is find the common ground. And uh, you, can, you can do that with anybody if people will remain civil while they're doing it. You can't be calling the other person names and expect them to cooperate with you. You cannot stand toe to, I have some people that say, you know, if you just stood toe to toe with them and yelled a little bit louder, you would get that done. I'd say, you know, I have tried that. And I always wind up having to apologize. And when you apologize, it puts you behind in the negotiations. So it's much better to find out where the common ground is and try and work out some kinks. And sometimes you can get from the 80% up to 90%. Actually, you can get to 100%. The trick is to find a whole new way of doing that other 10%. Uh, I've sent people off before that, that had a bill and said, you know, get together with them and find some other way to do that. And we'll be able to do it. And they come back and they say, we found it, we found it. And everybody on that little task force says, it was my idea. <laughs> and you know when they say it was my idea, they are passing it. That's right. And that's a way to get them done. I read yeah. this, and I want you to tell me if it's accurate. It was written in Politico. Someone said that Enzi is among the least flashy personalities in the Capitol. He often literally keeps his head down, immersed in either thought or reading, typically wielding an e-reader device. Is that you when you were in Washington? <laughs> Well, I, I primarily kind of avoided the media because you can't negotiate a bill through the media. You have to negotiate it with the other negotiators. And if you negotiate something by putting your idea out as being the prime thing in the media, you're stuck with it. If somebody else wants to revise it, then everybody gets into this controversy of how come you were so wrong? <laughs> well, I wasn't wrong. It just needed to be done differently. So... Um, I just never found any real advantage, and I was working on so many things, I didn't have time to go seek out the media to see if I could get their approval or not. Coy Knobel was my communications person for years, and uh, he agreed that the best, the best publicity you can get is earned publicity. When you do something, then you can tell people about it. If you're just working on it, that's no big deal. Everybody's working on something. Coy was the first person you hired when you decided to run for the Senate. He and was. When I, when I was just starting my campaign, I had no idea how to do a statewide campaign. I knew that they probably needed some kind of a person for press, and uh, Bob Peck was one of the people that talked me into running. Uh, and uh, so I went to him and said, do you have any press person that I, you know, what should I do? And he told me about this young kid that was really good that uh, he thought I could get. I interviewed him. He called, Coy called back later and said, no, I don't think I can do the job. I called Bob Peck. Bob Peck talked to him. He called me back and said, okay, Bob says this is what I ought to be doing. And he worked for me the rest of the time through the, through the Senate and uh, has been just a tremendous help and was great on press and then became communications and then actually became my chief of staff. And you ran that first cam campaign with three and a half people. <laughs> How did you manage that? What was it like well, going out to do a statewide campaign for the first time? Uh, it really helps not to know what you're doing. You and say that with some seriousness. I do, I do. And not having enough money to have the professionals who can tell you how you can start some controversy so that you can get press. 
uh, because that forces the other people to spend more money, which forces you to spend more money, and it, it just goes back and forth that way. Uh, the best thing is listening to people. Um, we did a lot of door-to-door -door and invited people to ice cream socials in the park. Uh, we didn't go and say, would you vote for me? We said, we're having this little get-together where you can come and have some ice cream and soda pop in the park at 5 o'clock. Incidentally, 5 o'clock is the best time to do it. People are on their way home. Mm -hmm. If they get home, they have dinner. They're not coming back out for something political. But they will come and, and visit with you at 5 o'clock. And uh, we just did a lot of the door-to-door -door that way. And uh, it compensated for not having a lot of money. Because people like to be able to tell you what they're thinking. Um, I don't do town hall. I didn't do town halls. I did listening sessions. At a listening session, I had somebody prominent from the town do the introduction and set up the rules. And I just sat at a table and took notes and we had a, a microphone and they could get in the line and come up the microphone and tell me what they were thinking. Uh, they could ask questions too, but I wasn't necessarily answering their questions. I didn't answer any questions <clears throat> at that time. I wrote down things and circled some that I thought were great ideas. And then at the end, I got the last 15 minutes to do some answering of questions and to point out the great ideas that I had heard at that. Uh, people in Wyoming are phenomenal at ideas. Of course, most of them are working that idea every day on their job. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking about it all the time that they're on their job. And they come up with these great ideas. Now, when I first started hauling these ideas to Washington, people would say, too simple, never work. I'd say, no, it's just good common sense. Well, common sense doesn't go very far back there. But as time went by, they said, well, is this another one of those things that somebody that's working on the ground out there in Wyoming came up with? I'd say, yes. And I'd say, okay. We'll do it. <laughs> You've talked about not liking committee meetings, but enjoying roundtables in your yes. legislative career. What's, what's yeah. the difference, and why was that important to you? Well, at a, at a, at a committee meeting, uh, the majority party picks all of the people that are going to testify, except for a small portion, usually one, and the other side picks that one. And then everybody comes and beats up on the witnesses. And the purpose of a hearing shouldn't be to beat up on anybody, not to make political speeches. It should be to find out what the, what the ideas are for that. At a roundtable, what we did, Senator Kennedy and I uh, actually experimented in this early on, is uh, we'd agree on who ought to be invited because they had done something in that area. And we would give them a set number of questions that we wanted them to answer. And then they would tell what they did, why they did it, how they did it, and what they would do if they were going to do it over again. And then the panelists would discuss, because they'd all have similar things that they'd, they'd done, and they'd make some suggestions for how maybe what that guy said might work a little bit better or wonder if it would. And uh, I remember after the first, uh, the first hearing we had, uh, Senator Kennedy came to me and he said, you know, it's really interesting to learn something about what we're doing before we write the bill. <laughs> <laughs> novel and so we did roundtables after yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's just a novel approach. Take us yeah. back um, in, in your history, um, Senator. You um, grew up in Thermopolis and then moved to Sheridan. Mm -hmm. So was your first job selling worms, Senator? <laughs> I don't think it was my first job because I think I was already mowing lawns and things. But uh, yes, I, I had 
I raised worms. I captured night crawlers and, and sold them. And that came into play later when I was in the legislature because Eli Bebout had the same kind of a background. <laughs> and so on one of the bills that we were discussing, we went into what our background was on money and how it applied to the bill. It was a lot of fun. But uh, I learned a lot from everything that I've done. Sometimes we do things and we don't realize how much we're learning from it. But you loved fishing even at an early age. Yes, I, I did. I had a grandpa that took me fishing and he had a little heart problem, so he had to have somebody with him. And so I got sprung a lot to go with him. And he taught me a lot. And we went through the transition from the old casting rods to the spinning rods to the fly rods. And you and even tie your own flies today? I do. A guy named Sam Abrakis helped to teach me how to tie flies. He's a famous person in Sheridan. And uh, tied, uh, I invented a fly in fourth grade. I was trying to tie a ginger quill. It looks nothing like a ginger quill, but it caught fish. And there was, a, there was a point when the only flies I ever carried with me was this NZ special. It's capital N, capital Z special. And uh, it, it pretty much will always catch fish, but it doesn't look good. So it'll never be in a magazine. Nobody's gonna really try to duplicate this thing because they like art in their flies. I don't know if it works. The fish like ones that look like they might've been chewed on a little. <laughs> You, um, you were in the JCs. Yes. Why did you join the JCs when you were younger? <laughs> well, when we first got to Gillette, uh, Diane and I were the only people working in the store. And actually, we had to build a store because it was a boom time. And this was a shoe store. A shoe store, yeah. The town got big enough for a shoe store. We had just gotten married. So week after we got married, we came to Gillette and started building a a shoe store, and we did uh, the carpentry work on it with Diana holding up big walls and, <laughs> and uh, got it into operation. But after a while, Diana said, you know, the only person that I get to talk to is you, and the only person you get to talk to is me. We ought to have some friends. Well, we tried to figure out how in a community we'd make any friends. And Diana had been in the Junior Miss Pageant in Sheridan, and knew about the JCs from that. So I checked into the JCs, which was a young men's leadership organization. It had a comparable women's group called the JCETs. But you couldn't be a JCET unless your husband was in JCs. So I joined JCs so that she could have some other friends, some other people to talk to. <laughs> and um, I got involved in that and wound up uh, being the local president, uh, kind of by accident. And, uh, but the chapter did real well that year, and then I got a state appointment, and then I ran for the state presidency because I didn't think anybody was really suggesting anything they ought to do. They just wanted the position. And so we ran for that and did ice cream socials with it and uh, didn't have any business probably doing it, but got it anyway, and then I went all over the state talking about leadership. Including making a speech in Cody. Yes. That a state, certain senator heard. State convention was in Cody, and our keynote speaker was Senator Simpson. And he did his normal, really spectacular, humorous job of speaking. I talked a little bit about leadership, and afterwards he took me by the elbow and led me off in the corner of the room. And he said, I don't know what party you're in, but that town you're in needs a mayor, and it's time you put your money where your mouth is on this leadership stuff. So coming back from Cody, Diana was driving. She does a lot of the driving for us. I said, you know, maybe I ought to run for mayor. 
And she drove down into the barrel pit and back up. I could show you the spot. And then we talked about what our community needed for the next three hours getting back to Gillette. Because Gillette was not booming yet, correct? It was on the cusp of becoming oh, it, a boom. It, it was already having a little bit of an oil boom okay. and it had a power plant. And you're 30 years and, old at the time. Is that yeah, right? I was 29 then. Okay. But yeah. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but we could see what was coming, and we could hear a lot of complaints about what was coming, too. But <clears throat> so we talked about what the community was going to need if all of these things happened. And I ran on that. I'm, I'm probably the only person that's ever been elected to office in Wyoming that ran on a planning platform. Actually, though, what I had on my brochure was that I was going to have an agenda at the council meetings and a balanced budget. Sounds pretty simple, <laughs> Senator. Well, JC's taught you about having agendas mm -hmm. so that you could get through meetings efficiently. And the state already had a requirement that you had to have a balanced budget. <laughs> so, but I wanted the community to be a place that people would like for their kids to grow up. And uh, evidently the people liked that idea. And I got elected, and then I found out what kind of a job I'd gotten into because we didn't have any water. Uh, we didn't have any snow removal equipment. We had a bad winter that year. Um, we needed sewer and water and sidewalks and everything you could do. Uh, in fact, they, I got a, got a call from the person that provided electricity, the city of Gillette, who owned their own electrical system, said, what are you going to do when your only substation blows up? And I said, What's a substation? <laughs> and he explained it was a giant transformer, and when the heat of fall came, that thing was going to blow up. I said, and so what would the result of that mm. be? He said, well, the people would be without power for about six weeks. Wow. I pictured myself being tarred and feathered when that <laughs> happened and started immediately to buy a substation, which was not in the budget, and mm -hmm. uh, that made that would have made that illegal, but I came up with a financial technique that we were able to use that uh, did that. But then I had to go out and get easements too. That was a whole nother experience for me, buying easements. And I had one that I couldn't get, so we had to go to court on that to condemn. And uh, as part of the process, the engine, engineer for the substation was said, um, so why do you need this easement? He said, well, if we don't get the easement, we can't c connect up the substation and the uh, <clears throat> whole power system will go out. And at that moment, the electricity went off in the courthouse. <laughs> <laughs> and the other attorney started yelling about theatrics and the uh, judge closed his book and I ran over to the window and looked down where my substation was and there's this puff of smoke <laughs> going up. True story? <laughs> true story, oh my goodness. true story. <laughs> but it was not the substation that blew up. Um, what had happened is that something had happened over in Buffalo and it affected our electrical system and blew a fuse. Okay. And the fuse caught on fire and was going up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we got our substation. It's just a num number of things. Water. We were already on water rationing and right. our water was color-coded. Uh, the, the hot water, the, the cold water came out kind of red from the iron in the water. The hot water came out black from the coal evidently in the water. Nobody drank the water. People had a lot of medical problems from that, so we knew we needed more water. And uh, needed more water storage, everything. So I was able to do that over the course of the time that I was in, as mayor. And, and for someone who didn't want to be in politics to start with, one might think that that would have been plenty, but on you go to yeah. 
state office. Um, yeah, well, I, I learned a lot of things as, as mayor, and there were a lot of things that I thought ought to be done differently for municipalities. And uh, I ran and, and uh, got on the corporations committee, because that's who handles all these municipal things. And one of the things I learned quickly was that they considered me biased since I'd been a mayor. <laughs> so after two years on that committee and not a lot of success, I said, put me on something else. Well, they put me on education. And since I'd never even served on a school board, I'd never done anything. I wasn't a teacher. I'd never done anything except go to school. <laughs> so I was an expert in that committee and got, got a lot done. It was a better experience for me. But I learned a lot about education, which sure. helped me when I got to the U.S. Senate. Sure. Because I got on the committee with health, education, labor, and pensions. But I'd done some safety work in the oil field. And uh, so there were some things I wanted to clear up at the federal level that I thought I could do when I when I got there, so that's why, one of the reasons I picked that committee, it also had more turnover because like I got on that committee down at the legislature and uh, they said, why are you getting on that committee? We just give that to the people that don't have anything. <laughs> I said, no, I, I want to get some things done here. And so I got on the, the health committee and, and uh, the safety committee down there and got a bunch of things done. So a lot of experience that I could take to Washington. Give us some insight into when you started thinking that you might want to serve in the United States Senate. How did those come? You said earlier Bob Peck yeah. encouraged you to run. What well, else went I had, into that? I had a lot of people that were encouraging me to, to run because uh, I remember when Al Simpson said that he wasn't going to be running. I was with, with my family. We were watching on television when he made his announcement. And my youngest daughter said, so is that something you'd ever consider doing? I said, oh, no, 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 no. There are a lot of people that have a lot more experience than I do that will want that job. I'll pick one of them. I'll help them run. I am not going to be in the Senate. Well. <laughs> but you had I, to make that decision at, at a point. Um, well, but I, I didn't really. Uh, we went and had the legislative session, and I had a lot of people that were encouraging me there. Kurt Meyer said, if you run for... If you decide you want to run for the Senate, I'll drop out. And uh, I said, no, don't worry about that. But at any rate, um, the legislature finished. I was relieved. Um, but I had municipalities calling me. I had counties calling me and saying, we could really use your expertise in Washington. Why don't you run? I said, no, there, there are other people that can do the job. Um, but then one day we were in church. and. Uh, this was about a month before the state convention, and uh, springtime then. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is April, and uh, I was lamenting how I hadn't gotten to hunt and fish like I would have liked to, because I was in the state legislature and I was mayor. That was pretty busy too, and uh, we were singing our last hymn, and I'm thinking I, I really ought to have some time to hunt and fish, and I got this little nudge that said. I didn't keep you alive to hunt and fish. See, about uh, about six months before, I'd had open heart surgery, emergency open heart surgery. I thought I had the flu in the morning, and by night I was having open heart surgery. So I was just recovering from that, and uh, I didn't keep you alive to hunt and fish. So I took my family right then. We left church. I was in tears. We went home. I said, "I'm supposed to run," and. Uh, I'm not, I don't know that I'll win, but I'm supposed to run. And I got a call from the uh, state party 
presidents and he heard as he heard that I was going to run and he said you know you've got no business running there's somebody that's already got half a million dollars they've collected for this they're well known around the state the only place anybody knows you is in Gillette so he said unless you've got $125,000 to get some name recognition out there you have no business running in this and I said well I don't have $125,000 but I'm running anyway we didn't know anything about running for state office. We had, we had nothing for running for state office. But there were a whole series of consequences that or, or coincidences that happened. Um, a local lawyer, John Daly, called and said, uh, if you'd run for the United States Senate, I've got some office space in my building that you can have. And a person that Diana went to school with but hadn't seen since school, called and said, I have this office supply store, and if, if Mike will run for U.S. Senate, I'll give you copy equipment and all that stuff. So everything started falling into place. I got on the telephone, I called all the delegates to the state convention, which was less than a month away, and uh, we went to the state convention, and uh, Barbara Cuban said, you know, you, you need a consultant. I said, What's a consultant? <laughs> <laughs> so she explained what a consultant does in a race, and she said, well, I'll, I'll let you visit with mine. And he was at the convention, so I, my family and I visited with him, and he told what kinds of things needed to be done and what it cost and all that sort of thing. And uh, when he left, my family went to get lunch, and uh, Brad, my son, kind of hung around. He said, Dad, oh, oh, we'd been told that there's a straw, that we used to do a straw poll. Right. And the winner of the straw poll always won the primary. And there was going to be this straw poll, and of course we hadn't been in the race very long, so we uh, asked, you know, what the consequence of that was to this consultant. He said, well, as long as you can come in second or third, you've got a chance. So we, uh, my son was hanging around and, and I said, what's the problem, Brad? He said, are we in this to win or are we in this to be second or third? I said, uh, Definitely in it to win. He said, okay, I'm still with you. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing. Uh, yep. So the family traveled with me and everything uh, all over. Of course, I needed a, a campaign uh, person, and I did a retirement party for a guy named Dick Bratton, who'd been with Black Hills Power and Light for his entire career. And so I was kind of the MC for this thing, and when it was over, I said, Dick, you know everybody. Would you be my campaign chairman? And he said, sure. And then he said, well, wait a minute. I probably ought to talk to my wife before I agreed to that. <laughs> so I, I promised that we would do a lot of travel as soon as I retired. Well, he got to travel and, a lot, and, right? <laughs> well, so she called me and she said, no, I don't think we have that in mind. We were going to travel. I said, have I ever got a deal for you? <laughs> we will travel places in Wyoming you have never been before. And she said, well... I wasn't just thinking about Wyoming. <laughs> but they signed on and they did that and they were a part of my team every time that I, that I ran. And uh, he was an old Marine, so we started every meeting off with God Bless America and the Pledge of Allegiance and he even brought a little Marine that was a metal one that would do God Bless America to sing along with us. Uh, it, was, it was a great adventure. They got to travel. We got to travel. We traveled every day of the, of the campaign. We had this old Dodge Caravan, and it already had a couple hundred thousand miles on it. 
And we just kept praying that it would make it through the campaign. Well, the campaign was over. I went out to get in the car the next morning to drive to Casper to do interviews. It wouldn't even turn over. <laughs> so be careful what you pray about. That's right. That's right. It got you through the campaign. It did. You spent yeah. a total of $125,000, your wife said. On the primary. On your primary mm -hmm. campaign. Closely yeah. fought, but you beat, yeah. who became later, Senator John Brasso in that campaign. Yes. Uh -huh who later thanked me and said, you know, if I had won that, I wouldn't have gotten to watch my kids grow up. And uh, it's turned out to be just a, a great, great relationship. This is from a person who didn't necessarily enjoy campaigning. Am I right about that? Absolutely. I'm, I'm a real introvert. I'm an accountant. <laughs> and, and, and you enjoyed less having to raise money. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Never liked to ask people for money, for me. I didn't mind asking a little bit for some other things. You didn't enjoy raising money, and in fact, there are times when you sent money back. Well, um, I, I did get a check from a tobacco company once, and it was the biggest check I'd ever gotten. It was just within the $5,000 limit that they had at the time. And, uh, but I said, I don't believe in, in the tobacco industry, so I don't think I ought to accept this. And everybody said, oh yeah, you, they, they know you don't like tobacco, so you can accept that. They just want you to win. And I talked to a whole bunch of people and I got the same message from all of them. And I finally said, you know, this is ridiculous. I've spent three days asking people whether this is right or not. If it was right, I would have known right away. It's wrong. I sent the check back. The company got a hold of me and said, you know, that's just one of many checks you would get if you accepted that. I said, I can't accept it. So I don't know how much I turned down, but <laughs> it talked, worked out anyway. You've talked about the mission statement that you had in your office mm -hmm. that had these three tenets, do what's right, do what's best, treat others as they wish to be treated. Mm -hmm. That's something Where did my, that come from? my mom drilled that into me my whole, my whole life. And uh, it, it turns out to be really, really good advice. Um, it's biblical. <laughs> so. <laughs> So she plagiarized. <laughs> no, it was, it was really helpful uh, all the time that I was growing up and it has been particularly in, in every office that I've held. And so we had that mounted on all the walls. Everybody had that by their desk and any bill that came through had to meet that criteria or we just didn't do it. Senator, you're one of just a handful of senators who have sat through two different impeachment trials with two different presidents. First of all, your thoughts on what you experienced with, with both impeachment trials. Um, and, and impeachment is an agonizing thing to go through. Um, you have to listen a lot. You cannot speak. You cannot ask questions. Um, even though sometimes the outcome appears to be inevitable and it takes weeks to do it, which is weeks that something else could be done, and uh, the result at the end of it wouldn't be very favorable either way that it comes out. has not been favorable either way that it comes out. And so I hope that there'll be a lot more care with any request for impeachment that, that comes along. Um, there, there are other things that can be done, and we've kind of set it up so that whoever's in power can look at impeaching the other, the other party. It's not about parties, it's about whether they have 
sacrifice the security of the nation. And anything short of that probably should be overlooked or maybe pardoned. I'm sitting. I, I know when this third one came up, and I had heard President Biden talking a lot about uh, bipartisanship. And I said, you know what would really work well is if he would pardon the president at this point, they not have the impeachment, and then he can say, I just did something for your side, what are you going to do for me? That would have created some bipartisanship. The historical, and would have gotten just as much done. Historical as the reference there is what President Ford did to President Nixon. Are you suggesting that that maybe should have been the same tact used there? Well, I, I hate to compare one trial with it, with another. I wasn't a part of the Nixon one. I watched it on television, just like I watched the, the what led up to what could have been an impeachment process. Um, that was that was a little different lie than either president has done. So. Uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to judge those things, and you're you're sitting there as a a jurist, but it's a special kind of jurist um, who can change the course of the history of the world. And it's it's a tremendous burden to do. I took a lot of notes during the particularly the first trial. Uh, stayed up most of the night wrestling with myself over what to do and what what I hoped they would ask and what I hoped they would bring out. And uh, um, sometimes worry is a, a waste of time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I, I hope they're very careful in anything they do. It's not something you can do against any president just because you don't like him. I'm sitting in the chair that you used to sit on. The, uh, there was a, your Senate desk on the Senate mm -hmm. floor. It has some history relative to President Bill Clinton's impeachment, I've learned. What is that? It, it does. The, the chairs in the Senate chamber are very special. A new one is carved for each senator that comes. The desks are there permanently, but the chairs are for each senator, and it travels from desk to desk as you move up in seniority. But I started as Senator number 100, and <laughs> that's in the back corner, and so during the Clinton trial, I'm having to lean around Gordon Smith, who's quite a bit taller than me, even though he's down one, one notch. And while I'm leaning, the left leg busts <laughs> off of the chair. And so I'm having to balance on, on three legs for about two hours while I'm listening. And as soon as we had a recess, I said, my chair busted. They said, well, would you like a, a different chair or would you like that one repaired? I said, well, I need a different chair to sit in briefly while that's being repaired. So there's an iron uh, bolt up the center of that leg that uh, has preserved it. So it's a, it's an historical chair for sure. Senator, you've expe expressed serious concern in your tenure about national debt. In fact, you painted a bleak image of the federal budget process saying, and I'm quoting from something I've read, that it's pretty hard to find anything positive with the funding situation that we're in. The deficit or gap between what the federal government spends and the revenue it takes in is projected to exceed one, exceed one trillion, and of course that was before COVID came along. Mm -hmm. Why should Americans be so concerned when apparently no one is about our national debt, Senator? Well, someday the bill is <clears throat> going to come due, and primarily that's going to come due when we don't have the same low interest rates that we've got right now. If the interest rate were to jump from its current 1.5% to 
we'd be able to fund Social Security, maybe Medicare. That's it, besides the interest on the debt. The interest on the debt would exceed those two. And uh, we wouldn't be able to, you didn't hear me say anything about national defense or education or health or anything else. So that would be a crisis point for our nation. And what are the options of what can be done at that point in time? I've had several suggestions for what could be done. I worked on a thing called the penny plan. And that's where everything would just be reduced by one penny on the dollar. And uh, that would have straightened it out. I'm pretty sure that after we did that one year, they would have said, well, one penny wasn't too bad. Let's try two. And uh, at three, we would have balanced the budget. So uh, I thought it was a great idea. I even talked to uh, President Trump about it. Unfortunately, he said, great idea, NC, we'll do a nickel. <laughs> no, don't do a nickel. That's too big of a cut to start with. Start with a penny. Well, <laughs> it never happened. Do you foresee Congress getting serious about our national debt anytime soon? As soon as they're forced to. I don't see it happening before then, unfortunately. And uh, by then, it's, it's kind of too late. Reflect there, were, there were some things that could have been done with covid uh, when they were sending out the whatever size $1,200 checks or whatever, uh, they could have requested that anybody receiving a check say that they would sign off on not receiving their Social Security until as many months later to make up that 1200 and to be means tested. Now, the younger the person was, the more eager they'd be to sign those, but it would solve that future problem that we're going to have with debt and funding those. And people would have said, yes, I received the money. I just received it a long time ago. And, uh, but those kind of ideas just don't go anywhere. We're going to talk in just a moment, Senator, Senator, about the legislation that you assisted with that you're most proud of. But I want to ask you first, what bothers you the most that you couldn't finish? Is it budget issues that give you the most trouble? Is it health care? Are there other things? What kind of weighs on your mind now that you reflect back? Well, the, the budget's, the, budget's the, biggest, the biggest thing probably, and I had a bipartisan plan to solve the budget situation so that it would become a bipartisan budget, which would make it possible. Uh, and Senator Schumer said, no, we're not going to do that. And Senator Whitehouse was just as disappointed as I was. He was the person on the other side that had helped come up with this. He'd even been on some task forces that came up with some of the ideas on it. But uh, it, it'll always be a disappointment that we didn't do that. That's for my kids and grandkids, because I've always said that someday my kids or grandkids are going to say, weren't you in the Senate? Couldn't you have solved this? I'd say, well, I tried. Mm -hmm. Before <laughs> we go on, successful, is, is the filibuster a good thing? The filibuster is absolutely essential, yes. Are you worried that you, it will be eroded here? Oh, I, uh, yes. It's a nightmare that I have. Uh, for both sides, because either side can take care of it and go with their most extreme instead of staying in the middle and finding a path down the middle that uh, has some common ground, which is what America's built on. And the Senate has always been the cooling saucer of the hot cup of coffee. And without the filibuster, it's not going to be a cooling system anymore. It's going to be a runaway. And uh, right now, the Senate provides some security and some safety and some sense. 
and I hope it continues. We're sitting in your office and right behind you are a few of the many, many bills that you had success with. What are you most proud of? <laughs> I've been proud of each one as I finished them because these all have uh, pens with them. And if you draft a bill and it makes it through the Senate and the House and the President says, wow, that's important enough, we're going to have a public signing for it, then you might get the pen. So these have pens mounted below the, below the bills, and I'm, I'm proud of each one that I did. Um, I did an early one for property owners that had coal bed methane who were going to have to pay back the royalties they'd gotten on the coal bed methane because the federal government... Was that your first bill? That was my very first bill, yeah. And I did it in, within the first two years that I was there. Uh, which uh, I, I'm told is the earliest that any senator has ever done an actual bill. They've done resolutions, but not bills. And uh, I, I did that kind of by accident. I went to Governor Geringer's uh, town hall meeting that he was holding at the library here. I happened to be in town that same weekend, and I thought I ought to see what these things are like. I went to it. The crowd was really angry, found out that it was because their royalties were going to have to be paid back. And uh, they wanted the governor to fix it. And the governor said, well, I think that's a federal issue. Senator Ainsley, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll, I'll put in a bill. And uh, somebody was a student enough to say, well, let's see, you're a freshman. That's not going to be a possibility. And uh, there's only 30 days left in the session, so that's not a possibility. I said, well, only thing I know I can do is put in a bill and lobby it. And I did it one-on-one, -on -one, which has been my style in the legislature as well as uh, in, in the Senate, just talk to every senator individually and get their approval. And I got that through the House and the Senate in less than 30 days. And the President said, President Clinton said that was good enough for a public signing. So, Do you think you could have done that in 30 days today with the political... Not a, not a chance. Yeah. Uh -uh. And I was, I was just really, everything fell into place and I'd been a part of the Energy Council, which is the 14 states that do most of the energy in the United States. And uh, since I'd been part of that council, I activated that council and they worked on states. And it was just a, a great team effort to be able to, to get that bill done in that amount of time. Talked earlier about your staff. Mm -hmm. And Flip McConaughey served as your chief of staff for 20 years. Senator McConnell said he was your secret weapon. He's yeah. also a great friend. He definitely was. He had just had a, a great way of managing people and talking to people and getting them to come up with their own solutions, as well as guiding the, the whole staff, both the committee staff and my personal staff, and making all of that come together. He was just a, a phenomenal manager and a really good friend, because he and I worked together at the city of Gillette, and then I talked him into coming to Washington to be a part of my team, and uh, that, that worked out really well, and then he passed away. But uh, he, really, he really headed up the team and, and got things done. Senator, you were out of office on January 6th, mm -hmm. but I need to ask you, what was going through your mind when you learned of what happened at the Capitol? I was just, I was appalled that Americans would do that. I don't care what incentive there is for them to do it. Uh, to attack their capital is just unheard of. We've always had a peaceful change of operation. And there's no reason to, 
to change that. Uh, it wasn't the outcome that millions of people wanted. Um, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't happen in America. And, uh, Were you in Wyoming then? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the, on my, my final day was the day that, uh, that Senator Lummis was sworn into office. I escorted her down to be sworn in. I escorted her back. I said, now you are the sitting senator. This chair is yours. And uh, incidentally, they had already changed out the chairs. <laughs> <laughs> and I left and <clears throat> we came back to Wyoming. So I just, just ahead of all the problem. Senator, you've traveled the world. Where have we, you been? Well, we've gotten to see a lot of the world. We've been there on on special missions to accomplish certain things. The biggest one, of course, has been a ministry to Africa, which President Bush started when he said, we're going to spend $15 billion on ending the AIDS epidemic. And I got to be a part of that. And after we got it passed without amendment through both houses, then I got sent to Africa to see what the problem was. Devastating problem. <laughs> and it was an eye-opener. I had no idea. I, I had heard of poverty. I had heard people complain about poverty, but I hadn't seen poverty. And uh, a lack of things that uh, over there, a mother can't get an aspirin or a Band-Aid. And water is a precious commodity. We saw this new well that had been put in, and so some of us were pumping it. It was like one of the old hand carts where they're up and down on both sides. And the kids had their five-gallon can there, and they had an old gallon milk bottle that had the bottom cut out of it, and they were using that as a funnel. And we were pumping, and the water starts flowing out of it, and they start yelling at us. And somebody grabs the bottle and puts their hand over it so that none of the water can come out of it. And we're finding out that that water is so precious they do not want a drop of it running on the ground. And they passed that gallon jug around and drank the water that was in it rather than pour it out. I've never seen water that precious. But before that well was dug, they had to go five miles to get their water. And you were telling me that the hope was everyone would be within five miles. Yes, yes. Within five miles of water. Right, right. If you're in about fourth grade and strong enough to carry two five-gallon cans of water, you might have to drop out of school and that would be your daily family job. Go to the pond where your water was, where animals bathe and drink and people do their laundry and bathe, and that's your drinking water. And you'd carry your two five-gallon cans back and that would be your family's water for a day. I love to ask kids in America, how, how far do you have to go to get some water? <laughs> it's usually a few steps to the tap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's clean water. Sure. Yeah. Spent so, an awful lot of time in Europe. Gotten to meet with a lot of heads of state and uh, have been impressed with the impact that we could have there. I got sent to Russia to do a treaty because there are um, items that can be used in civilian ways, but they can also be militarily used. And some of those could be very dangerous to have in the wrong hands. And you're prohibited from sending those to certain countries. Well, it wouldn't help if we didn't send them there, but the Russians did. So I got sent with it to negotiate a contract uh, with the Russians to prohibit that. I was also doing, it's because I was doing a bill in the United States Senate that would do, would streamline the process but keep the bad stuff out of the bad guy's hands. And uh, I actually got that through the Senate. Um, 
And I, then I got to negotiate this contract, and uh, it was it was quite an experience. I took two interpreters with me. One uh, was my interpreter. The other one acted as though he didn't know what was going on, but he was listening to the counter conversations that would be going on among the other people. I learned more from that than I did from the person I was negotiating with. It's a technique I've used in my office all the time. If another country comes, I have two interpreters from the State Department, and one of them does the interpreting for me. The other one's a listener. Uh, but at any rate, we got this contract done, and they said, well, we need to do a press conference. Well, I'm not very clear, but I understand this is a big deal internationally, so yes, we'll do it. So we leave the room, we go into the press room. Now in Washington, there'd be 30 camera, TV cameras, there'd be all kinds of press people, there'd be radio people. We walk into this room, and there's a press person, a TV person, and a radio person. That's it. And they ask us exactly the questions that they evidently want asked. And we answer the questions. And the next day, every single media in Russia had the same story without an error. <laughs> <laughs> Tells you a little bit about, sure. their, about their country. But they went on and followed the stuff, did the stuff that we'd been asking for in the treaty. Now, my bill that had made it through the Senate languished in the House because 9-11 happened. Mm. And they said, well, this this won't work. I said, no, we've already reviewed it. And we had we didn't foresee it, but we took care of some things that happened as a result of 9-11, so it would work. But it didn't pass. So, but where, else, we, where else did you get to travel that you'd like to share with us? Um, got to go to Israel. And Netanyahu is one of the smartest people that I have ever met with. Now, one of the things that frustrated me at military bases, and we visited military bases every place that we went, is they always like to do PowerPoint presentations. And that's mostly so that you'll know who's in command, so you know who you want to promote, although we don't have anything to do with the promotion mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. And it is such a waste of time. While I was doing that, Diana would get to see the real stuff on the base. And I'd say, I could have watched that video in my office I want to see the real thing. She saw ammunition sorting and MASH hospitals and, and all kinds of things. It would have been helpful for us to know, but we didn't get to see that. But um, Netanyahu would, would slip a PowerPoint in so beautifully. I don't know how he did it, but when we'd ask a question, he'd have a couple of slides that he could bring up to show what his country's situation was on that. It was amazing and helpful. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we visited in Syria and got to meet with the, the king there. And, and uh, um, we could carry some messages between places and countries that weren't necessarily talking. Um, in, in Europe, uh, a lot of it was uh, geared around our, our medical facilities and uh, how we were handling those. But it was just... Uh, such a unique experience to get to talk to heads of state. We went into um, a number of Afghanistan, visited some of the prisons there, <clears throat> saw some of the bad guys, <laughs> uh, saw some of the security problems, got to see some of the good things that Americans were doing in Afghanistan. The uh, Nebraska National Guard, when they were there, showed them how to put in drip irrigation systems. Well, they weren't quite finished when the Wyoming guys came in, but they were able to finish the project up. That makes more friends than anything anything else. Uh, in the prisons, everybody had glasses. 
because that was a sign of prestige if you could get glasses. So they all claimed bad eyesight. <laughs> Whether you needed them or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, uh, again, a lot, of, a lot of friends in other countries. Um, all the times I went to Africa, and I think we made 14 different trips to Africa, uh, on the 14th trip we said, you know, we've never gotten to see a game animal here yet. Could we just go through one of the... <laughs> and so we spent a morning getting to see some... In a game reserve? Yeah, yeah. elephants and... Nice. Those things, yeah. You, um, you, you spent some time in the Oval Office. Yes. What did you think the first time you went into the Oval Office? Um, it, it, it's just an overwhelming place, really, to go in. There, there's so much history and power represented there. And, of course, you're talking to the number one person in the world as the President of the United States. And sometimes they're even asking your opinion. One of the things that amazed me on Trump was that he, President Trump actually listened. And uh, a lot of them are there just to give their opinion. But uh, uh, President Bush and President Trump were very good at uh, asking questions and then listening to the answer and then sometimes wanting those things done. You worked with the Gang of Eight, and your role was to try to help solve the nation's health care issues. Mm -hmm. What did you think when Obamacare ended up being the solution? Well, <clears throat> I'd been used to uh, finding common ground. And in that one, every suggestion that we turned in was turned down. And some of those would have been good additions or changes. Um, and in <clears throat> fact, we, we went to a special uh, joint session where President Obama outlined what he said needed to be in the bill. And I always take notes, and I took notes. And when I went to the Gang of Eight the next day, I said, now, he mentioned several things. There were eight things that he mentioned in his speech that aren't in our bill. We need to put those in there. Said, no, we're done. So <laughs> there were some things that could have made a difference, but uh, if it came from a Republican, it wasn't going to be in there. Is America's health care system sustainable as we know it today? Um, Are you concerned about it? Well, I'm, I'm concerned about it, and there isn't anything that can't be uh, corrected or fixed or improved. There are always improvements that can be made, but they're not going to be made through comprehensive bills. They're going to be made a step at a time. Um, after I was through being the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Chairman, Lamar Alexander was. He's a firm believer in the step-by-step -step process and uh, was able to get a lot done. Um, he added a new tack to that, which is do some step-by-steps and then combine them all in one bill and see if you can't force them through. <laughs> but at least there'd been more scrutiny on the step-by-step -step that way than there mm -hmm. is in the normal comprehensive bill. So... There, there are some great people back there working the problems. And you, you developed some great friendships on the floor of the United States Senate. Um, I'm going to ask you about electronics here in just a minute. But which senators, <laughs> which senators were you closest to? Um, well, uh, I hate to go into the list because I'm going to leave out some that were really special to me. But uh, um, on the Republican side, of course, I spent an awful lot of time with them. 
But I have some real friends on the other side of the aisle, too, that I was able to work with on bills. Ted Kennedy, of course, being the, the most prominent and the most worked with person. But uh, Harry Reid and I did some special things, and he was one of the first people to congratulate me after I retired. Um, Senator Whitehouse was outstanding at working on budget, budget issues. Uh, I worked a lot of coin issues while I was there. I actually got Sacagawea on the coin because she, of course, is buried in Wyoming. And <laughs> they were trying to uh, replace the, the dollar coin and were thinking of the Statue of Liberty. I said, no, it ought to be a real woman. And it ought to be Sacagawea. And I got a lot of help uh, from Wyoming kids on promoting that. Uh, in fact, it was so much help from Wyoming that just outside of Jackson, there's a little town that doesn't even have a bank, and that's where the first of the coins were, were introduced. And incidentally, that's the only coin in the world that has a baby on it. Interesting. And in the first year that coin was out, we made a billion dollars off of the coin. That's because you make them for 12 cents and you sell them for a dollar. <laughs> Nobody gets that kind of a markup. Mm -hmm. So I got involved with a lot of different coins. The uh, uh, Buffalo Bill Cody Museum and the Bison Association and the tribes asked me if I couldn't get the buffalo back on the nickel. So I had the Bison Association bring a buffalo to Washington in the park outside my office building and we invited the coin committee and uh, we made the request. And they not only approved it, they said, well, we're going to introduce it in that same place that you did the, did the meeting with us, and, uh, but can you bring your buffalo back? Well, I wasn't able to bring the same one, but I had a buffalo back there. <laughs> and you didn't touch its horns? No, I didn't touch its horns. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the keys. Like I kept saying, don't touch the horns. Don't. I said, why, don't, why not touch the horns? I wasn't going to touch them. He said, well, that's the strongest part. Of, the neck is the strongest part of the bison. And if you touch the horns, that's the most sensitive part of the bison, and they will knock their head and throw you 30 feet. So uh, I don't... Tourists in Yellowstone should be so educated. <laughs> <laughs> now, later, Senator Kennedy came to me, and he said, you know, the, uh, um, the Humane Society wants us to do a fundraiser. And uh, I told him that I'd bring my pets, and I thought I'd see if you wouldn't co-sponsor it with me, because we founded the Cultural Caucus, and that was part of it. And uh, uh, he said, so would you bring your pet? I said, well, I don't know if I can get my bison back here. <laughs> oh, no, don't bring your bison. My dogs went nuts. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but I, I got Dick Bratton on the coin committee, and... Uh, and then he was followed by another Wyoming person on the coin committee, and they got to do uh, different backings on the nickels and uh, uh, different backings on the dollars. And so a lot of those decisions came out of Wyoming. But of course, one of the first woman that headed up the mint was a Wyoming woman. Right. Senator, we just mentioned just a moment ago about electronics. And um, you've advocated, but you've advocated for a long time that simple laptops should be allowed on the Senate floor, yet they aren't today. No, I, I started doing that when I first got to Washington because I was used to using it on the Senate floor in the, at the state legislature, and they worked really well, and we were already connected well enough we could move from the Senate floor to the committee room and back again and still be connected. And there were a lot of things we could be doing while we were listening, and that's one of the problems there is in Washington. Nobody's on the floor listening. 
Now, they might be in their office listening, but uh, it's much better to play to an audience and have people that can look up from their work and see what you're doing. So I've, I was trying to get the have them have electronics on the floor. Now, I was willing to put it in a brown cover so that it wasn't that noticeable on the desk, but and they couldn't use it unless they were sitting at their desk. If you watch, though, you'll see people picking up their cell phones and using them. That's illegal. That's an electronic on the floor of the United States Senate. But I wasn't able to get that changed. Why the pushback? Why, why isn't that just a common sense thing to do? Well, <laughs> I don't think many senators had done it. And I had one senator that came to me. I think he was probably the only honest one. And he said, um, I don't know how to type. And if you're there doing it, my constituents will expect me to. And I would be embarrassed, so I can't vote for it. Now, on the other hand, Mitch McConnell, um, I, I got in Time magazine because of this, this story. They picked up on it. And uh, Mitch McConnell went to New York City on a trip, and he got in a cab, and the guy said, you're a United States senator, aren't you? And he said he was pleased that somebody recognized him. He said, yes, I, I am. And the guy said, so when are you going to let the guy from Wyoming have his computer on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> Senator McConnell came back and said, you know, if you got this lobbied down to cab drivers, I think I'm with you. <laughs> Still didn't work. Uh, yeah. 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 And somebody gave me a quill pen and an inkwell, which I keep on my desk in Washington and now here, because I said, well, if you're not modernizing to electronics, why aren't we still back on the quill pens? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it, you, are, you are literally, um, here we are, we're having this interview in, in late April, and you are still going through a lot of the, the boxes that are still unpacked down in the basement. You're coming across things like that probably every day. I am, and, and actually getting to savor them now. I didn't get to savor them when I got them because I was busy working on a whole bunch of different bills and trying to get them through. And now I can take the time to remember the agony or the joy of every step of that process. And that, that's a lot of fun. But I do have a lot of boxes downstairs that I could go through, but they're also digital now, electronics. And uh, I knew the university would, they had asked for my records, but when I got ready to give them to them, they said, we'd really like them digitally. And my staff said, here, and gave them a little tiny box. About the size of your phone, probably. Yeah, they're yeah. slightly thicker than my phone. And I said, well, gee, that's the way I'd like them, too. And they said, well, here's your copy. <laughs> But I can go through and see the original. Sometimes that's more fun, too. Sure. Plus the notes that I will have written on the margin. We were visiting this morning off-camera, Senator, about whether there might be a book in your future. And I think the answer you told me is, yeah, I don't know. Is that <laughs> what you've been thinking? Well, I've, I've been writing down a lot of my memories, and I did that through the years. Uh, there is a book already. My staff put together a phenomenal book that showed what I did each year from from their standpoint, and of course that reminds me of a lot of stories of how we actually got to that, mm. to that point. But, uh, so I've been writing down the memories and I, I thought about doing something more extensive on my 80% tool. And then I thought, well, senators aren't very good at reading and... That's <laughs> a know, scary I'm thought, Senator, advice, by the way. <laughs> well, looking at advice from <laughs> sure. other senators, because sure. they know as much as the other senators. Sure. So then I kind of changed and thought, well, I'll, I'll write it as a secret book for chiefs of staff. And maybe it'll 
find some use that way because I think they might be looking for some secrets. And uh, perhaps their senator will say, so where'd you come up with that idea? And they'll mention it and the senator will say, get me one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do yet so far. Just been trying to put things together and, and uh, have some time with my, my wife and, uh, and getting these things ready and being normal, <clears throat> normal people, talking to people that I haven't had a chance to talk to for more than 15 minutes for 24 years. 15 minutes at a time sure. for 24 years. <laughs> I want to just, just chuckle. Um, when I first sent you an email requesting this interview, the auto reply I got back said, we check this about every other week or so or every week or so, and you might hear from us soon. We got things to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did come up with, a, with another email address so that people that wanted us to do something could, could yeah. let us know, hopefully well in advance, so that we could see if we would be able to work that, work that in with family activities and community <clears throat> activities and things like that, and, uh, and also to stay unscheduled to some degree. Because after 24 years of being scheduled seven days a week, yeah. people don't realize that you're scheduled every minute that you're in Washington. And then when you come to Wyoming, you're scheduled every minute as well. We get up on Friday morning at, uh, we, we catch a ride to the airport at 5.30 in the morning and fly out here. And then we'd finish up at 10.30 or 11 at night. Now the 5.30 out there is actually 3.30 out here. And so it made a, made a pretty long day. And then we'd get up the next morning and do it all over again. And then Sunday would come and in the afternoon we'd catch a plane back to Washington again. Or maybe Monday morning we'd catch mm -hmm. a plane back. But you scheduled seven days a week. People don't know that. Another thing that uh, was a, kind of a surprise to me is that your biggest job is not legislation. It's casework. There are thousands of people in Wyoming who have had a pro Well, there are over 12,000 that I've worked with that had a problem with the federal government. And senators are, can often cut through a bunch of the red tape. One of the biggest things was uh, Vietnam medals. When people got their medals after Vietnam, they were actually a little embarrassed because of the national emphasis at the time. And so they didn't worry about their medals. Now their kids and grandkids are wondering what they did. And they say, well, I got some medals. But well, when they go back to get them, the first uh, response they get is that burned up in a fire in St. Louis. Well, I know that they're duplicate records of everything, so we put a lot more pressure on them. That what it turns out is that everything from the later wars is digitized, so it's easy to look it up. But Vietnam's all in dusty boxes and big warehouses, and it takes a lot of effort to go back and go through them. And we made them go back and go through them, and we found a lot of medals for a lot of people, and it's, it's great to be the one who can finally hand them the award that they sacrificed for, the hard work that they, that they put in. But there are just all kinds of problems that, that people have with the, with the federal government that we get to solve, and I didn't know it was nearly that big of the, of the caseload. We also did a thing called Wyoming Works, and that's where we went around and visited businesses, because we, we know that people think that uh, all there is to run in a shoe store is fitting the shoes and taking the money. But there's a whole lot more to it, having the employees, training the employees, ordering the shoes six months in advance, paying for them before you ever sell any of them, 
At any rate, every every business is a lot more complicated. Meeting payrolls, looks. all of those yeah, things. Yeah, even the, even the Senate's a different business, and most people think we just go there and vote, but there's a whole lot extra that has to that has to be done. So we said we ought to take a look at some of the businesses in Wyoming and see what their special problems are, and that really helped because in Washington, when somebody was proposing a bill, I'd say, well, I I know this this uh, this person in Dubois that's going to have a heck of a problem if you do the bill that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, so having actual examples helped quite a bit, but it was also really inspiring to see how these people had worked through different problems that they have, because every business has different problems because they're working with different customers. And uh, it was really helpful in, in working with pharmaceutical problems, because I had some pharmacists that uh, really could show me what the ins and outs of the problems were and how they couldn't even tell how they were doing because of the middlemen that were mm. in there that wouldn't assess them until the end of the year, some other things like that. Yeah. So it was it was real helpful to get into them, not to mention, you know, you just don't think about how these businesses operate. We stayed in motels for the 24 years when we came back, primarily, except for the every of the month we got to come to Gillette. But I really hadn't stopped to say, how do you run a hotel? And there are a lot of intricacies to that, that sure. it's not just signing the people in and taking their money. No. Nope. Not even if you serve breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> How is it being a grandpa? Uh, it's, it's one of the great gifts that anybody, anybody, anybody could have. And uh, I've enjoyed watching my grandkids grow up. I hope to be able to watch a little bit more detail now. And... Uh, Diana has been a phenomenal grandmother during all of this time. She gets right in and from the time they were little and played with them and uh, has their confidence and they trust her. Uh, that's a privilege too. So, but uh, be fishing with them a lot more now. <laughs> As a, was it Senator McConnell said, he hopes your lines are tight. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yes, well, I'm learning about Euro-nymphing now, which is a new method of, of fishing. Sounds high-tech. Well, they found some ways to sell some new rods okay. and new lines and new <laughs> leaders and new reels. And, uh, but it, it, I've been watching some videos on it. It looks very promising, particularly for Wyoming rivers. The big ones are all down further than the little ones. And so the trick's to get past the little ones to get to the big, big ones. ones. We'll see how that works. Best wishes there. Yeah, thanks. So here we are. What's next for Senator Enzi and Diana? Well, I don't know. We'll be praying about it a lot and uh, see what the Lord has in mind. I'm taking a little bit of time with no schedule and uh, a lot of fishing, I hope. Uh, I did check with people that over the years had said, oh yeah, come out to my place anytime and fish. I've been checking with them to see if that still held when I was no longer the senator, and uh, I've been pleased with the results on, on that. But it, it, uh, I'm willing to answer any questions anybody has. Uh, I'm not going to call and suggest to what people ought to do, but if they have questions and they think I might have an answer, I'm plenty willing to visit with them about that, that possibility. But it's time for a new generation. And uh, I'm willing to encourage that generation. Uh, maybe there'll be some young person that I can take by the elbow and say, I don't know what party you're in, but it's time that you ran for mayor or legislature or whatever to put your money where your mouth is and 
show a little leadership. Are you bullish on Wyoming's future, Senator? Oh, I am. The, the people of Wyoming are phenomenal people. There's so much that, that nobody knows in Wyoming about Wyoming. We have inventors. I've, I've done an inventors conference every year that I was in office and have been amazed at some of the things that people have come up with that they've patented that, that make a difference. I've, I've done a GrowBiz conference. Um, I found out that the federal government would come to some states to see if there was a product uh, that they could either get that was better or less expensive. And I said, hey, come to Wyoming. We, and they said, oh, you don't have enough people. We can't, we can't do that. Well, I heard they were going to come to Montana. And uh, I said, well, if you're coming to Montana, you can just drop down into Wyoming and do the same thing. And they said, well, okay. But unless, you, unless you'll have at least 125 people there, we'll never be back. I said, okay. So we held it at Cody. And we had more than 125 pre-registered, and then in typical Wyoming fashion, we had others who showed up afterwards. Now, kind of the humorous part of this whole thing is Montana didn't have 125. <laughs> so they have never had another one. We've had one every year except for during COVID, um, where they come to Wyoming and they enter into contracts or they help people fill out the forms that are necessary to bid on federal projects. And uh, we've had some really successful people bid on federal projects. There's a, a couple of young men in Casper that know how to bend metal to make almost anything. And they saw a bid by the Marines for eight by eight by eight tanks, uh, stainless steel tanks with rounded corners. And they put in a bid and they got a call from the Marines who said, um, we really like your bid, and, uh, but, but we want to see your product. So within six weeks, we want you to deliver one to Georgia. And uh, so these guys put their tank together, loaded it on a trailer, and drove it to Georgia. And down there, the Marines said, we've never had anybody deliver their own product. Yes. <laughs> but I was still working with them for quite a while after that because they said, the Marines always want six of these. Eight of them will fit on a truck for the same price. Mm. We never could get it up to eight. <laughs> Even that when Wyoming is looking beyond its um, reliance on the mineral industry, where do you see Wyoming's future evolving? Um, when that may become perhaps, especially here in Campbell County, a little less of being important to Wyoming? Well, I hope they don't give up on minerals because there are some minerals out there that uh, are gonna be really critical to security of this nation. We have the largest deposit of rare earth. Now the Chinese have been buying up rare earth in countries that we've been to. And in some of the, some of the countries, it's been an easy process. Um, they might say, you know, you really don't have a good soccer stadium here. How about if we build a soccer stadium for you in exchange for your rare earth? Say, well, we don't use any rare earth, so good deal. Well, they've been getting all of the world's supply of rare earth. Well, one of the biggest discoveries is not very far from Gillette. Uh, it's over in the, the Sundance and Hewlett area. And it's one of the biggest deposits of its kind. And they were going through the permitting process and we were helping with the permitting process. And they stopped. I said, why'd you stop? They said, well, we discovered and actually kind of knew, but it hadn't thought about it, that it would have to be refined in China. Right. There's no refinery in the United States. I said, well, let's get a refinery. 
So we started putting some pressure on that, and we put enough pressure on that uh, the Army put out a, it wasn't really a bid because it only went to uh, certain people, and uh, I got upset over that and asked for a delay on it because our people didn't even know about it. And so it got delayed, but they wound up giving it to the Chinese. <laughs> I said, that's not progress. <laughs> they already have all of it. Now we're just going to have them do it in the United States and then have their equipment break down, and we still won't have it. And to, to put this in perspective, if you have a cell phone or a big screen TV or you're concerned about lasers or national security with fighter jets, you're concerned about rare earth. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Even electric cars. Yep. Yeah, there's... And there's a lot of different chemicals in the, in the rare earth. And we could be producing that ourselves. And where it ought to be produced is right here near the mine. So somewhere here in northeast Wyoming, there ought to be a refinery. And we're probably one of the only states that would approve a refinery just because of the name refinery, which sounds like something really bad. But it would still have to meet all the environmental criteria. Senator, just a few more issues that I'm, are, are things I'd like to discuss before we, we leave today. Where were you on September 11th, Senator? Uh, I was in my office in the Russell Building of the, at, the, on, at the Capitol, and I was talking to a person that I worked a lot of safety issues with who was in Alabama. And I turned on the TV so that I could see if Mrs. Bush was going to be testifying in the same room that I was planning on going to. And when I turned on the TV, the World Trade Center was on fire, and I talked to the guy and said, something's happening in New York. He said, yeah, I know, but i got to talk to you about this safety stuff. And just then the second plane went in, and I said, I've got to go. And I walked out the door and got shoved into the same entourage with the First Lady, and they started loading us in a car, and I said, no, 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 I can't get in the car. I've got to find my wife. And uh, they said, well, then you can't come with us. So I found my wife, who was at home at the time, and uh, we spent the day in fear together, and uh, it was a, a strange time in Washington, really strange. Some of my staff coming in saw the plane go into the Pentagon and turned around and went home. The streets were jammed. The phone lines were over capacity, so you couldn't make any calls. Nobody knew what was happening or when. It was The automobile dealers were in town at that time, and... Uh, Nothing flew for quite a while after that, so they actually bought a, a Suburban and drove it back to Wyoming and then resold it. <laughs> what, um, how did that influence you, Senator? Um, well, they were, it, it touched off a whole chain of events because um, we knew there were terrorists and uh, I had gotten appointed to the finance committee because Jeffords jumped ship and that changed things and so I got on there and they, uh, there was one committee that nobody wanted so I could be the ranking member. Later they said, how'd the new guy get that? It was anti-terrorism. I got appointed to the United Nations Task Force for uh, Counterterrorism and uh, it was a bunch of accountants like me and we said, why don't we follow the money? And that really worked. We had 130 countries that joined us in participating with that. And uh, they, a number of those countries caught the bad guys, tried the bad guys, and eliminated the bad guys. And you never heard anything about it. But uh, after a while, they figured out what we were doing, and so they started using messengers and stuff for it. 
but that was just a, a tremendous experience by itself. Um, uh, Do you think, generally speaking, Senator, we're safer today than we were on that date so many years ago? Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're so safety security conscious now that uh, we spend a, a fortune on things that uh, <clears throat> are never going to happen. Is it just, the just in case? Is it the right thing for America to get out of Afghanistan now? Has been announced by President Biden. Well, I'm not a part of that decision process right. anymore, but uh, I really appreciated uh, the first President Bush who did the Iraq war, or the war in Kuwait, went in, kicked them out, and came home. And I'm, I'm hoping that wars will be of a much shorter duration and for much more specific purposes than that. Um, of course, I was there when we did the second Iraqi war. I looked at the videos. I am convinced that there were uh, chemical weapons available and that they got hidden in the desert. I saw videos of them moving them. Uh, so I had no doubt that they were planning something much more dangerous and bigger than what we'd ever experienced before. So we have to be diligent. We have to make sure that our, our military is up to snuff and provided. I met with Gillette Korean veterans um, through the course of my thing and, and have been to some of the places in Korea that they were, they were stationed. They tell a story about how their guard unit got activated because there weren't enough regular troops and they were promised they'd be trained before they went, they'd be trained on the way, they'd be trained when they got there, and they weren't. They were shoved right into battle and given eight bullets a day. Now, fortunately, they're from Wyoming, so they could line the bad guys up. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really. They sure. Were, they were pretty scared over sure. not having even enough ammunition to take on an enemy. So hopefully we'll never be in that situation again. We'll be prepared and not need to use it. And hopefully if we need to use it, we can use it on a short-term basis, not on a, a prolonged one that's a war between tribes. The nation is undergoing a revitalization of its nuclear arsenal, I'm sure you're aware, and that impacts Wyoming. Are you satisfied? Are you pleased with how that effort is progressing, specifically how it applies to F.E. Warren and, and our nation's nuclear defense? I worked real hard to make sure that that would, would be done and uh, kept trying to move F.E. Warren up on the priority list and had some success with that. But uh, yes, we have, to, we have to be prepared. That's one of the tools that we can use to prevent a war. We'll lighten things up as we, as we get towards the end of our interview, Senator. I'm told that the staff at Tortilla Coast misses you <laughs> and misses Enzi on Thursday nights. That was a tradition for you. It, it was. Thursday night was usually the end of the voting. We didn't leave until about 5.30 the next morning to come back to Wyoming. And uh, so we could go to Tortilla Coast, and uh, originally just Diana and I went, and then we decided that we ought to include some other people, so we started inviting some staff members, and, and uh, it, it just became a Thursday night tradition, and a very enjoyable one where you get to see some people outside the workplace. And uh, it was also relaxing for us. What do you miss about Washington, or what do you think you will miss? about Washington? Uh, I'll miss the people, and that's about it. I got to serve with some tremendous people, and uh, 
I got to work with some tremendous people that were on my staff um, and on other people's staffs. And uh, I, I hope that I can see some of them again, most of them again, any of them that want. <laughs> We've invited a lot of people to come to Wyoming and we'd give them a tour. I don't know if anybody will take us up on it, but uh, I'll miss the people. Well, Senator, we appreciate your service to our great state. Um, full disclosure, your, your wife now is a member of the Wyoming PBS Foundation Board, and we appreciate her as well. Yeah, well, she's been the essential part of my life and has handled all kinds of problems that I never had to worry about, and she handled them more efficiently than I would have. And uh, I'm just so pleased that I got to have this adventure, uh, that the Wyoming people trusted me to be there. United States Senator and act on their behalf and the same for the city of Gillette and the, the people in the state that let me learn all of those things. Uh, people need to have adventures, get outside their comfort zone and I certainly have and it's been a, a privilege and an honor and uh, just so many wonderful memories. We certainly wish you the best. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on Wyoming Chronicle. Thank you. This program was funded in part by a grant from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food and beverage products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Funding for this program is made possible in part by the Wyoming Humanities Council, helping Wyoming take a closer look at life through the humanities, thinkwhy.org, and by the members of the Wyoming PBS Foundation. Thank you for your support.